We will turn to our reading for the morning, which is from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Good morning, Orlando Grace. It's a pleasure to be with you again. And... Um, I wasn't even asked if I wanted to be introduced this morning. That's a good sign um, uh, because uh, I consider you a friend. And I want to thank you uh, by giving me the gift of your friendship and uh, to be here with you this morning in uh, Jim's absence. There are uh, 359 days until Christmas. And nowadays, they're all shopping days, right? Um, Well, probably won't be surprised when we start hearing Christmas music on the elevator on July 4th, some of these these years. Maybe you love Christmas, maybe you don't. But we are challenged to ask from the scripture text this morning is what difference does Christmas make? This scripture text mentions the first Christmas. The grace of God has appeared. And it mentions the final Christmas, which is described here as the blessed hope of his appearing, of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. One day uh, we will uh, live in an eternal Christmas where God will be present with his people. And uh, we, he shall be our God and we shall be his. But the question is, what difference does it make to live between the first and the, great, and the last great Christmas? Uh, instead of uh, just a, an annual Groundhog Day where we repeat the same things from year to year and go through the same motions, the, the apostle wants us to understand that because of the first Christmas and the final Christmas that Our lives should be shaped in the now, or the way our translation renders it, the present age. And so I would like us to look at these words from Timothy to Titus and to us to see how the appearing of the grace of God and the promise that it will appear again helps us to live in the now age, how it makes a difference in the now age. And the difference I'll suggest to you and show to you from these words of Paul is that the grace of God has appeared and will appear so that we'll live in the now age to make his grace famous. That's the end goal of Paul's words here, to make God's grace famous. So let's look how it is God's intention that living between the first Christmas and the final Christmas, we are to make God's grace famous famous. First of all, we have to note that God's grace has appeared. That's the way Paul begins here. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. 
And it is a redeeming and purifying grace that has appeared. And therefore, it is offered for us as the first matter to receive and accept that grace which he has brought us in Christ's appearing. Let's look how grace has appeared as Paul explains it. We see in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Just a little side note here, when Paul says all people, he several times uses the word all, not to mean every single person, but all kinds of people, the expansiveness, the breadth of God's grace. A a prime example of that is in 2 Corinthians when he says, Christ died for all and therefore all died. If all died in Christ, then all would be saved. All would be united to God, reconciled to God, and that's obviously not the case from Scripture. So here, likewise, when Paul says all, he means all kinds of people. There is a, a wideness to God's mercy. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And he's referring here, of course, to the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ, the one who is subsequently called in this text, our great God and Savior. Grace has appeared. The word here is a a shining word. The, The grace of God has shined like the sun coming up in the morning. It is a great light. And how has it appeared? Well, in this case, it's like the two pieces of bread on a a sandwich. He begins the thought, the grace of God has appeared, and then tells us what the effect of that grace is at the end of this passage. It is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, verse 14, gave himself for us to redeem us. There you have the idea of, Christ buying us out of something for something, and we find out what that something is, to redeem us from all lawlessness, that is, to be without a law, without a norm for human behavior, uh, without uh, a revelation of God's will so that we might conform our lives to it, and to purify us, to redeem from lawless and to purify us. This is the purpose for which the grace of God has appeared. Note here, the initiative is on, God, is on God's part. The grace of God has appeared. It's shined. God hasn't waited for us to call upon him, but rather he has, while we were yet sinners, Paul tells us in Romans, died for us. And to be lawless here doesn't simply mean to be against the law, but it means even to be without a law that there is chaos in human relationships as well as in divine human relationships when there is no law in the land, when there is no rule or norms for behavior. Paul says the grace of God ransoms us. Now the idea of ransom there is we are captive to something and we have been purchased out of that captivity. We're no longer under the sting of sin, but not just the sting of sin, which is its penalty, but also no longer under the servitude or slavery of sin, which is the power of God's grace. We're ransomed not just from owing something to God and others, but we're ransomed in order to live a new life. Imagine, uh, and I'm sure it's happened somewhere, somebody out of some humane interest, no doubt, has broken into a dog pound and set all the dogs free. 
And imagine that dog pound being on a busy road. You have to imagine. You may, my wife grew up on a farm on a highway, and they just named their dogs colors. Brownie, goldie, blackie, because it was, it was the, the lifespan of a dog leaving on a major highway was not great. You see, God doesn't redeem us just to turn us loose and, 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 and serve ourselves, but he redeems us in order that we might belong to him and that we might live for him. So grace doesn't mean that we're now free to do whatever we will, but it means we're free to do whatever God would will, knowing that he is both kind and capable of blessing us. But it's not simply to own us or to enjoy our servitude or our loyalty to him. It's to purify us, Paul says here, to purify himself for himself a people. Now, if you stop to think about all the metaphors that the Bible uses for sin, you begin to get this wonderful multicolored picture of what God's grace is about. And one of the metaphors for sin in Scripture is filth or dirtiness, uncleanness. It's not physical uncleanness. Jesus, in the fullness of time, said it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean on the inside. But rather, the the filth or the dirtiness is a, a, a way of speaking of our own moral unfitness before God. And I don't know if you've had the experience of running into somebody unexpectedly. You would like to present yourself at your best, but you're not at your best. I remember waking up early, one of my college days at one o'clock in the afternoon, (laughs) uh, shuffling downstairs to where I live to find something to eat with hat head and uh, a three-day t-shirt, and the girl I had begun to date just randomly dropped in. Uh, And it was more than just a mild case of shame that I felt that morning. I was not at my best. And we know that one of the first and foremost effects of sin is shame. Adam and Eve hid from God because they were ashamed. You see, what Paul is saying here, the gospel has purified us, not simply scrubbing us, but, but making us presentable, removing our shame. And this is the wonderful good news of God in Jesus Christ, that God's grace makes us able to stand in God's presence, blameless with great joy, Jude wrote. So the grace of God has appeared, and it is grace which we must believe, that we must appropriate by faith in order to enjoy the freedom that sin's penalty and sin's power exercises over us. But of course, you all know that. I often think of the Sunday after Christmas uh, similar to the first quarter of an NBA game. Only hardcore people show up. I used to say the fourth quarter of a Gators game, but that's changed. (laughs) I remember you're an FSU guy, Chuck. Is that right? No, I got that wrong. Okay. Well, you'll have to give me some grace. But the grace of God has appeared. That's something that perhaps 
is an old, old story that you love to hear, but nevertheless, something with which you may be familiar. But notice the second thing Paul says about grace here. Grace trains us. Grace trains us. Look at verse 12. The grace of God has appeared for all people, training us. Now, our translation wisely chooses train instead of teach. Because it's easy to think of teaching as just information transfer, right? The teacher knows something, he or she teaches it to the student, the student repeats it on an exam or a paper or something, and the learning process has taken place. But we know there's a deeper learning, right, that involves (laughs) behavior modification. And that's what Paul is saying here. The grace of God trains us. We just took a trip to the forgotten coast, no, the hidden coast (laughs) of Florida. Looks forgotten up there. And we had our two dogs in the car with us the whole way. It's quite crowded. And we regretted not having trained them better. Uh, because with, with pets, you know, training precedes teaching. You don't care if they learn something. You just want them to be trained, right? Well, Paul, of course, cares. Uh, doctrine matters. Facts matter. Truth matters. But there's a, there's a greater goal for the truth of God. God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. The grace of God is to train us to say no, to say a no, and to say a yes. You see, there's a grave mistake that people make about God's grace regarding this. That grace is a get-out-of-jail-free card And then we meet up with God at the end of our lives when we die. And we give the right answer at the pearly gates and we get into heaven. And that is not the grace of God. It is some kind of grace, but it's not God's grace. Because the grace of God trains us. Now, it may be confusing because you've been said, well, grace is unmerited favor. It is true, it's unmerited favor. But even God's unmerited favor is conditional. To put it the way one ancient put it, we must receive it with the mouth of faith. God's grace is conditional upon faith. Of course, faith is a gift of God. We know that. But grace must be responded to. But more than that, grace is to have its effect. I've met more than one person in my life who has even produced from the back of their Bible a little booklet or something or a card on which they signed their name at a certain time in their life. They made a decision and they said, that settled everything. And yet their lives reflect no discernible difference from the most eager God denier. Why is that? Because there's a version of grace out there that Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. It costs us nothing because it costs God nothing. See, but true grace is costly to God and to us. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross, deny himself. Because that's the path to life. It's not a path to an advanced degree in Christian living. It is the path to resurrection. So Paul says grace trains us. It trains us, first of all, to say no, to renounce ungodliness. Ungodliness is uh, the 
antonym for the word godliness, not surprisingly. Godliness in the Paul's world here in which he's writing to Timothy is the way in which one relates to the gods or one's God. The pattern of relating to the gods. And, 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 and Paul is saying here, the grace of God trains us not to relate to God in the way that we relate to other gods. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced after enough years of observation that every instance of the Christian faith is to some degree or another a folk religion. That we make of the one and true God an American God or a God of whatever other adjective you might want to apply. <clears throat> Ross Daltat, uh, Wall Street Journal columnist and author of the book Bad Religion, has explained why Christian faith has so little impact in the public sphere, it's because we've, we've reduced it to the good life. There's nothing costly about being a Christian except getting your tweet blocked if you're too overt about your views. And that's not the biblical gospel. The grace of God says we relate to God as he has revealed himself to us. To do anything else is idolatry. And we have to be examining how our attitudes, our beliefs, our notions of God in order to see to what extent is my Christian belief partly a folk religion where I have made it not just what the Bible says about God, but what else I've added to or taken away from that. We're to say no also to worldly passions. Uh, Jamie Smith, professor at Calvin College, has written a very good book called We Are What We Love. It makes the greater point that others have made, well, we are not simply knowing creatures. We, we often make the mistake of thinking, if we think differently, we'll do differently. Well, when the New Testament talks about thinking, it, it's, it, it's, it's referring to more than just cognitive facts. It's referring to ways of relating to things, ways of orienting our lives toward things and even James makes it clear we're not so much thinking creatures are as we, uh, d- creatures as we are desiring creatures we do what we love and we are what we love in the larger biblical picture often you'll see the difference between being human and being subhuman is acting like animals what do animals do? Well, they act on desire. They, they are wired that way. They have no, no will similar or as, as human beings do. And when human beings are beastly, remember King Nebuchadnezzar, he became a grazing cow under the hand of God's discipline. You see, when we are in Paul's terms in Galatians, we bite and devour one another. We're like a, 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 a brood of pecking birds who we, we turn on each other like, uh, like animals. You see, Paul says there's, there's something more for us than to act as desire-driven creatures. A lot of brain research, I've been listening to a lot of uh, things and reading some things in recent months on, on, on brain science. What's really interesting, um, the, the, the mainstream kind of academic research on brain science is moving more and more toward the idea that humans are not free. That we're simply the product of the chemicals and the experiences that combine. And in the criminal courts and other places, it's going to get very interesting as people more and more say, I only did what I could do. You see, but the Bible says very, something very different about human nature. It says <clears throat> we have a will that can say no 
to our desires for our own good and also for the good of others. So we're to say to note on godliness and worldly passions. We're, we're more than just desiring machines. But we're also, conversely, then to say yes. For Paul says we are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's what the grace of God trains us to do, to live upright, godly and self-controlled life. Self-control being the opposite of worldly passions. That we are in a self-conversation about our own desires. I want, but I must deny my want. That's what laying down our lives means. That's what self-denial is about. It's for our good and the good of others. So self-controlled means to not act on our impulses, but rather to act according to the kind and benevolent will of God. Upright, it's the same word related to just or justified, to do the right thing. The grace of God teaches to do the right thing. Righteousness in the New Testament is not fundamentally an essence, but it is a verdict to have acted right in a matter. And so we do the right thing, we live just lives or we live uh, upright lives by doing the right things in circumstances, even when it's to our own detriment. To do the right thing is to live by faith. It's to believe the grace of God that in the end, God will be just. And so now, in the now time, in the present age, doing the right thing is the good thing to do before God. He'll take care. He'll sort it all out in the end. To live upright lives means to act in the best interest of others to our own expense. Just as Christ, though he was rich, yet he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. And to live godly lives. The opposite of ungodly, that is, to relate to God according to the way in which he has called us to relate to him. So grace trains us. It trains us to say a yes and to say a no, so that we are to live in this present age in a different manner. Why? Not only because the grace of God has appeared, but because the grace of God will appear again in Jesus Christ, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That grace teaches us not simply to live looking back, but to live looking forward. I've pondered over the years, what's what's the best way to draw a crowd for a Sunday school class? Well, one one option is how to know the will of God. Uh, But another one, another one that would draw a big crowd is end times. Pastor Graham, have you taught a Sunday school class on eschatology? Are you here? He's in the children's. Oh, have you taught a class on the end times yet? Oh, you double your attendance. Now, if you really want to score big, how to know the will of God in the end times? But you see, there's actually more to that than might seem on the surface. Of all the times the Bible talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ, it's almost universally, if if not universally, for ethical reasons. 
The Bible doesn't talk about the second coming of Jesus so that we might map out the end times. It talks about the second coming of Jesus so that we might live sober, upright, and godly lives. Because what's more tempting to be ungodly and to be desire-driven and thinking that there's, that, there's, that there's nothing new under the sun and all is vanity, to use the words of Ecclesiastes. Knowing that our, we have a blessed hope is the way to live by faith in the now. To live by faith, to do the will of God, even when it doesn't look profitable, even when it doesn't look like it's in our own best interest, we do so because God in Christ will come again. Paul says, if we hope for this present age, we are the most to be pitied. And he's not referring just to the narrow fact that we get resurrected bodies, but the fact that there is a a, a final judgment, a new creation, and that God will set all things right, and that living by faith will count ultimately. Living by faith is the best life then, even when it's not the best life now. And so grace trains us to say no and to say yes, not only because grace has appeared, but because our blessed hope will appear again. So grace of God has appeared. Grace of God teaches us. And the last thing I want us to see, and perhaps the more unique thing to see, is that grace testifies. Grace testifies. How is grace to testify? Well, we find it in the closing words of this passage. In verse 14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This phrase, a people for his own possession. The King James used to translate this peculiar people. And it is universally agreed that Christians as a class of people are peculiar. But not always in the good way. This translation is a serviceable one, a people for his own possession. The, the one I like better uh, is uh, God's special treasure. That conveys a better sense of this word. And it's a, it's, a, it's a concept which goes back to Exodus 19, when God from Mount Sinai declared to recently freed from slavery Israel, you are to be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a people for God's own possession or my special treasure. And it is, a, it is a term both in the Old Testament and then moving forward into the New Testament, a term which describes the people of God as in terms of not only their status, but their purpose. Uh, I'm not a Green Bay Packers fan, and I'm but some of you might be, and you might be familiar with the gesture of uh, quarterback Aaron Rodgers. Uh, I think that's supposed to be a championship belt gesture. Uh, when uh, somebody makes a good play, they 
you know, they do this to signify their, I don't know, or the, either that or they're rapidly expanding waistline, something like that. But Ezekiel actually speaks of the people of God in this way to describe the people of God as something like jewelry which adorns his waistband. That this idea of a people for God's own possession or God's special treasure defines not only who we are, we belong to God, we possess a certain beauty because of God's grace, but we are to have a purpose as well. We are to make God look good. We're to make God shine. Peter says this very thing in 1 Peter 2. Without missing a beat, he takes his Old Testament term for Israel and applies it to this people who are living stones being built up into a house for God, who are a royal priesthood and a holy nation, he applies this term to them as well. So that, Peter says there, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, the grace of God isn't given to us just to possess, but the grace of God is given to us to reflect. And notice how that grace is to be reflected a people who are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. I don't want to be misunderstood here, so I'll try to say it in a couple of different ways. But we mistakenly reduce the witness we have as Christians. We mistakenly reduce it to verbal witness only or primarily. Whereas the New Testament, and the Old as well, the whole Bible, says our witness is primarily to be in our ethical lives. There are those people who are appointed to speak for God, the prophets, the apostles, the evangelists, the teachers, who are to proclaim the word of God and to faithfully expound it. And, 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 and Peter certainly says, doesn't he, that we are to be ready to give an account of the hope that was within us But how much of the time have you experienced that your verbal interactions with people are more problematic for people who aren't Christians than your good work interactions? Uh, We're we're very sensitive right now. Is there a new age of persecution or is there a marginalization of Christians going on in our society? And there are reasons and there are places where we should be concerned that uh, we we won't have the freedom to express Christian beliefs and practices in the public square. And yet the last I checked, no one has passed any laws against visiting the prisoner giving companionship to the widow, being parents to the orphans, and kindness to the stranger, hospitality. When we see a law passed against hospitality to the weary and the poor and the wounded, then we'll have something to worry about. In the meantime, we have all the room in the world to testify to the grace of God which has trained us to be zealous good, good, for good works so that God, God's grace can be made famous. 
I'm not suggesting we reduce our verbal witness. I'm sure you, like I, uh, have opportunities where we could have said more, been more explicit, been more forthcoming about who we are and why we live the way we do and what we believe. But to be zealous for good works, the city set on a hill, the light which cannot be hidden, to be holy as the Lord is holy. Do you realize First Peter is about people living in a world much harder to live in than we live in. And he starts off with, be holy as God is holy. And then it's a few chapters later, you find one of the most explicit verses about personal witness in the whole Bible, to give a hope and the account of the hope that is within you. There's nothing diametrically or opposed between holiness and witness. If you understand that it is our ethical witness by which the world will most readily observe us. And we may find it's not a welcome witness. Uh, the early church or the church of the first few centuries found this as they uh, sought to rescue the castaway babies and to uh, show kindness to the underclasses. That that witness may not always be well received. But yet is, it is the one which God has charged us to live by. I'll just add a, 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 an additional uh, observation here. There are, are three things that Paul tells Titus that uh, we're to say yes to, to live self-controlled, upright, and guided lives. Now, in the first chapter of this letter to Titus, Titus was uh, on Crete, and the Cretans, or Cretans, more properly spoken, um, the Cretans were uh, a, a, a small people on a small island in the Mediterranean under the uh, ominous shadow of the Roman Empire, and they were quite a resourceful people. Today, if you wanted to think of a, a category of person, you might think of gypsies or Irish travelers, people who lived by their wits. And uh, they have kind of valued that reputation they had. In fact, on the island of Crete, there was a tomb of Zeus, Zeus is the chief god of the Roman pantheon. Think about it, a tomb for the chief god. It was sort of like a practical joke. And it's, and it's, it's the way in which the, the, the Cretans put forward their identity. We are a resourceful, slippery, scheming, uh, tricky people. You know, they would have always been th- throwing laterals and faking passes if you're into football these days. Misdirection. And, and, and Paul says to Titus there, the Cretans, they're uh, always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now you can think, now that's, that's not a way to win friends and influence people, Paul. Um, but he's actually quoting one of their own philosophers. This was sort of their credo. They get by by living by their wits. And so it's thought by some commentators that to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives are actually a contrast to liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So if, if that's true, and I think it is true, Paul is saying more than just do good works. He's saying distinguish yourselves from the culture in which you live. Live counterculturally. Don't just do things because the world's doing them. One of the greatest experiences I have when I travel international, I've been to some places where I felt like I was farther away than planet Earth from home. When you can't read a Pepsi sign, you're a long way from home. And there's nothing more 
comforting to me as I travel closer and closer to the good old America and I see those blue passports. I mean, when you're in a place where you don't see a blue passport, or you see a red and green and every other kind of color under the sun, and you don't see that dark blue passport, you really feel alone, or I do. But so, so that, that passport, whatever nation you're from, is a, is a mark of citizenship, right? You know somebody is from that country when they have that passport. You see, Paul is saying to Titus, let the grace of God, it's training and testifying power be your mark of citizenship so that the world will know that you're followers of Jesus Christ, that you're beneficiaries of the grace that transforms and testifies. So it's more than just getting up in the morning and saying, what good things should I do today? But it is getting up in the morning and say, how can I live as if I belong to God by his grace. So the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God trains us. The grace of God, as it transforms us, will testify to God's great grace. And this is how we are to live between Christmases. The first one and the last great one. I grew up uh, not far from Alton, Illinois. In fact, I just passed that way a couple of weeks ago when I was visiting family. There was an old bridge there that was a white-knuckle bridge. (laughs) But then they built a new bridge, and if you've seen a Discovery uh, special on it, you might be familiar with it. It's called the Clark Superbridge, named after the explorer um, uh, of the famous um, uh, Western Expedition. And the two towers of this thing are majestic. They're 250 feet tall. And um, they are monuments in and of themselves. If you've ever driven across the Clark Superbridge in Alton, Illinois, you will remember it architecturally, aesthetically. And it's really awesome in the true sense of that word. But, If those towers were only there as monuments, they would be of little use, wouldn't they? I think the last time I remember checking, they carried something like 20,000 cars a day. They're a way of getting somewhere. And not only do they carry those tens of thousands of cars a day, they allow river traffic to pass underneath unimpeded, the way the old bridge often presented a hazard. You see, those two towers aren't just monuments, as glorious and majestic as they are. But they provide a bridge. They provide a pathway. They provide a way of proceeding. And that's the way we should look at the first Christmas and the last great Christmas. They aren't just to be celebrated for their majesty and their beauty by themselves, which they could be. We could glorify God for eternity just on the incarnation and on the second coming of Jesus Christ. But that's not the limit of how God wants us to live. If we live by grace, we are to live in light of the grace of God which has appeared and will appear by presenting ourselves to the world as transformed by his grace. That's your name after all, isn't it? Orlando Grace Church. May God give us the grace 
to continue to be trained by his grace so that we may be able and effective to testify to his grace in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would be efficient in our lives through your living word and by your spirit to open our eyes to the things to which we still need to say no, the deep and hidden desires, ways of thinking, habituations, instincts, and to rewire us, God, so that we might find your ways natural and pleasing and even second nature so that within our homes, in our communities, our workplaces, wherever you have called us to live and serve and love, Lord, that we might show the transformative power of your grace so that we might adorn you, make you famous, make you beautiful, so that others might desire your grace in their lives as well. For we pray in the name of our great God and Savior, our blessed hope, Jesus Christ. Amen.